Welcome to the Band Library Podcast. You can find us at bandlibrary.com, Twitter at bandlibrary, and wherever else librarians congregate. My name is S.D. Harker, librarian and writer. You can find me on Twitter at Harker Books. If you want to help out the library, become a friend of the library over on Patreon, patreon.com slash bandlibrary, or make a one-time donation on Venmo or PayPal. Our username is bandlibrary. This week we are covering The Upstairs Room by Joanna Rice. Let me go right up and say we don't normally cover nonfiction on this podcast, even though we're going to do it two weeks in a row. That's not because we're scared of facts or anything controversial. We just don't want to upset anyone by embellishing or saying anything silly over real-life struggles. At one point, we didn't even want to cover books by living authors because we fear the power of social media to connect people. But fuck it. If you hear something over the running time of this episode you disagree with, well, we did too. The book is a memoir of a Holocaust survivor in Holland, a Jewish lady who as a little girl had to hide from Nazis to escape systematic murder. That's horrifying. It should upset and disagree with you. What should also upset and disagree with you is the fact that this book was banned for language. No shit. Indiana and Maine both banned the book for the word damn. And maybe there's a shit or two I didn't catalog all of it. Not for the scene where the girl learns her uncle and his family were sent to death chambers. Not for the description of how Jews were led into showers with bars of soap thinking they were going to get a shower. The book was not banned for the systematic rounding up of men, women, and children out of movie theaters or off the streets or from their homes for the purpose of working them to death, or just death. People had a problem with the language, profanity. So fuck those people, and anyone who disagrees with my artistic expression of pain and defiance to an uncaring world, you know what I mean about that. Come on, Satchmo. We don't want to hear any nonsense about that from you. That's my soapbox, and I guess the mission statement of this little bit of nonsense podcast. It reminds me of the time I was out with my friend Wesley Wanamaker, a member of the great American family, and a boy who could talk his way out of a box of snakes. Me and Wesley were out one night in the quarry smoking a little methamphetamine when the police came descending from the sky like Valkyries. I just ran. Couldn't think of anything to do. Head full of meth, heart full of future, plans going through my head. So I ran and I kept running until I felt a sonic boom in my head. My heart failed inside my chest. My breath caught in the wind and I was rushed away by furies unseen. Wesley, he just looked at the police and said, You boys want some or you just like guns? He was shot 62 times and fell to the dirt. Next day the paper said, he had a machine gun on him, but he told me later they'd just seen his dick. The legend continued. But anyway, let's talk about the upstairs room, starting with the author. Joanna Rice, or Reese, 
I feel bad about that, but I don't know how to pronounce it. She was born in 1932 in a small Holland town I also can't pronounce. It looks like Winterswitch, Winterswitch, like the cousin of a Game of Thrones Winterfell, but instead of a castle for heroes, it's a lookalike made of cardboard. Is this where Winterfell, people ask, and the residents of Winterswitch say, no. Like it was a town built to trick the White Walkers into thinking they were at the right place, but they were really like two towns over. Like in Blazing Saddles, or I think it was in Three Amigos, where they dressed everybody up. But of course, those are two movies one brings up when thinking about Holland and the Holocaust. So for three years, about the age 9 to 11, Joanna, then known as Anna, or Annie, was hidden in a small farming community of... Yeah, I got no idea on this one either. Usolo? Sounds like a discount brand of Target merchandise sold by a member of the Real Housewives of Reykjavik. Anna and her sisters and father lived through the time, spoiler alert, for the book that, despite the fact that this is not a diary like Anne Frank, she lived to write the book later on. Anna did. If you have no understanding how publishing works or writing books. But first she went and taught elementary school. I have no idea where or how long, but eventually she moved over to the United States. Once she settled down in America with her husband, Jim Rice, or Reese, in the 1950s. Sadly, her husband completed suicide in 1969, but not until he encouraged her to write about her experiences in World War II as a child. She said that she had begun writing her book for her daughters, and was later told it was publishable. And so it was. 1972, the book came out to great acclaim, published by Thomas Y. Crowell. It went on to be awarded the 1973 Newbery Medal and the National Jewish Book Award, just two among several awards. Comparisons, of course, were made to The Diary of a Young Girl by Anne Frank, your mileage may vary, but which one gives a better report? If you're monster enough to compare the real-time account of a young girl full of hope versus a grown woman looking back on her life, well, both give honest views of life under duress during one of the worst times in human history. Beyond that, I'm not going to touch it with a ten-foot pole. Rice did go back to write a sequel. It's called The Journey Back. As my copy says, this book is a prequel to The Journey Back. thought that was interesting. That story was published in 1976, focused on Anna's father and sisters rebuilding their lives after the war. Kind of like how my mom heard about how my dad rebuilt his garden after the invasion of snow beetles when I was in 8th grade. But not really, because, well, dad just lit the field on fire and danced on the ashes. My sister and I helped because Dad doesn't dance very well. Mom just wrote, he done it again. Which is pretty accurate, I guess. But I don't think I'm going to get that published. But anyway. Ms. Rise went on to live a long, healthy life, or so I'm told. At the time of this recording, or at least the last time I looked a couple days ago, she was still kicking along. In her late 80s 
around New Hampshire or somewhere. She has two kids, at least two grandkids, enjoying whatever holiday she chooses to celebrate. I like to think she's really getting down on Cinco de Mayo. She did become a great speaker, both of her experiences with the Holocaust and her husband's suicide. So great a speaker, in 2018, she was knighted by the Dutch government for speaking in the United States and around Europe. Shit. Should I be... Should I have been saying Sir Rice? Lady Rice? Goddamn Game of Thrones. Confused me once again. All that shit. And... R.I.P. Brienne of Tarth, if she's died, I don't know. Still probably going on. She might have lived, I don't know. And moving on. So we covered the author. We dipped in with it being banned for a few dams. And not much more horrible things implied in this book. So fuck Indiana and Maine for that. And I don't care where you're going for your summer vacation or where you live. Maybe don't be a dick. So we begin with a little downloadable content introduction about World War II. It seems there was a First World War that did not treat Germany so nice. Cut forward a few years, and this dude named Hitler felt things weren't great in the homeland. So he started talking shit, and he got elected the leader, bringing forward the National Socialist Party, also known as a bunch of good people on all sides by the current United States asshole-in-chief, and for the rest of the world, fucking Nazis. Just love shooting the shit out of those evil bastards in every video game, from period-appropriate Europe to space Nazis. And everywhere else, because fucking Nazis are bad, no matter what side they're on. There, I said it. So just to catch you all up in the cheap seats, Hitler built up an army, and the world said, Well, sure, don't do that, but maybe just a little one. You know, you can stop it. Hey, maybe not blaming the whole Jewish population the great, and the world said, yeah, that's not good. And then he invaded Poland, and that's when the shit hit the fan. In came the Russians in the United States, and a little while later, everyone celebrated all the fucking Nazis dying. My grandma had cake over their corpses. She was English. That's what they did. Maybe it was a little over the top, but I apologize for nothing. We begin our little tale with young Annie living in winter, whatever the fuck. Probably said that wrong. Anyway, there's a word out there that the fucking Nazis were bad dudes, having just had the Kristallnacht. If you're unaware, Kristallnacht happened in November 1938. The, quote, Crystal Night, unquote, when Germans went around smashing windows of Jewish houses and Jewish-run businesses. The glass on the ground reminded everyone of Crystal, so they gave it a name that resembled Christmas, because people are horrible creatures, filled with horrible bugs. Anyway, Annie's dad wants to get the fuck out. Go to America. But Annie's mom has headaches, and she says no. My mom once also said no to my dad because of headaches a lot, especially when he wanted to wrestle. But he went out there anyway, and he wrestled for the championship belt against Arnold Warner Jr., local Division Three wrestling champion, and my dad lost. 
Yeah, Pop. He lost pretty bad. When he came home, he was proud of that second place belt. And he also brought home some aspirin for Mom because, well, they loved each other. And if she had a headache, she wouldn't have sex with him. Annie's dad, he's a little bit different. She decides, and since they are moving, fuck it, they'll build a house outside of town. The shit hits the fan, they'll be a little bit farther out of the range. Other people in the family, they got the fuck out. Got on a train and left. Dad's pretty pissed about this. Pissed enough so that when his whole family drops the family off at the train station, he just gets in the car and leaves Mom and Annie, the other sister, whoever the fuck else was there. I don't remember. They got two other sisters. Just left them at the train station. I can honestly say, I have only been, I'm leaving your dumbass at the train station, angry, twice in my life. Once when two friends of mine convinced me to drive them to New Orleans, they told me they were going to the races, it turns out, we were picking up their grandma from the airport or some shit. If you believe it. The second time, well, let's just say the marriage didn't take place anyway. So after almost everybody with money or sense has left Winter Schnitzel, the Germans move in. Probably some nearsighted Germans, too, because one of them spits at the family as they were out and about doing family shit. Probably going to the library. Fucking Nazis. I bet he could see them. I bet he was just being a dick. And almost overnight, the German infection spreads. Neighbors and friends begin to turn against the Jewish population. Business slows to a halt for father with cows out there just standing around. I mean, that's what cows do, but when your business is selling cows, well, that's not the best. The new house gets built, and it's pretty nice out there in the country. A little farmhouse. Annie gets a dog, little thing she loves. Then the fucking Nazis start making all the Jewish citizens wear stars. To kick it even more, they have to buy their own stars, the material to make them. Multiple ones, in fact, so they can wear them with different outfits. Then one night, in the early morning, the fucking Nazis show up at everybody's house in town. Makes all the men come out and take them away. Taking the able-bodied ones away. Asking for volunteers. Help them work in the camps. This is the first mention we get of the camps, by the way. And it won't be the last. But at this point, it's really hard to leave. Dad says, fuck it. He's just going to leave. He'll send for the family later. He's going to Switzerland. Takes off in the middle of the night. Girls in the house, they chill for a bit. But he comes back about four days later. Not able to cross the border. Mom's headaches. They've been getting worse. A whole lot worse. She has to go to the hospital. But, of course, there's new laws. New rules on when and where the Jewish population can move where they can go, what they can do, when they can buy things. The family can't go to the hospital to see her. But little Annie, they send her along. They talk to some turncoat bastard and they say, Hey, can we get a pass to see my mom? And he says, Oh, I recognize you. You are a friend of my little girls. Of course you can have the pass. Dude has the balls to say, Hey, you're my little bastard's friend back when we had your people... We let them go to school and hospitals and didn't give in to fucking Nazis and send you off to die. 
Of course, I'm paraphrasing, but that's pretty much what he says. Then women begin to be taken as well. A whole lot worse. Without mom there, not to be able to go, dad starts preparing to get the fuck out. He gives away the furniture to friends, just in case they can come back. They know where it is. And Annie's horror, he gives away her dog. Now Annie's pissed at the fucking Nazis, or at least she should be. At this point, I'm tempted to simply relay to you the story of Mr. Jonathan Wick. See, something happened to his dog, and he did what every civilized person would do. He murdered everyone responsible and salted the earth so they wouldn't grow back in their place. But this is a true telling, not a filmed crazy movie. Annie is a little girl. She's not John Wick. She's not the man you hired to kill the boogeyman. Where's the pity? But more and more people are being taken away, so Dad finds a family they can all go stay with. They disguise themselves. The older sister, Sinny, I think is how you say it. Sinny? Sinai? I'm going to call her Sinny. That's how we're going to say that. This time, probably different next time. But her older sister bleaches her hair. Fortunately, because it's so black, it only goes through a weird red color. Annie gets her hair all cut off like a boy. Their oldest sister, Rachel, says, I'm not dressing up as shit. I'm going to stick around because mom's still sick. Not everyone in the family has the best sense of timing. Don't worry. Uh, She makes that out okay. She waits around until mom dies, and then she just bolts as the fucking Nazis come a-knocking. So Annie and Cindy, they take up at the Hannock house. Some nice people. Stay there for the new year. Then have to move on to the Ustener. Damn it, I think I misspelled that one. This little farm family. Three people in it. Here's Johan. He's a a nice guy. Curses a lot. That's where most of the cursing comes from. Then there's his... I want to say it's his wife. And I'm not going to even try to pronounce her name. I'll call her Big D for now. But I couldn't really even tell what their relationship was. They didn't, I don't know. Everybody just were sort of assholes to each other. And I think it's her mother that lived with them, this old lady. But I kind of figured they were also just taking pity on her. Her name is Opo. That's again how I'm saying that one. But she's kind of awesome. Johan, right away, makes this hiding place in the upstairs room. There's your title, by the way. He took this little section of closet and he built a fake wall, basically, so that they could shove the girls in there, put the wall up, dump some towels and shit on there, and nobody'd notice any different. Just in case, you know, fucking Nazis come searching. And around this time, there's this hidden radio that Johann's got, and they find out that the Russians are kicking ass in Stalingrad. And the family manages to get the girls a copy of War and Peace to read because, well, they're simple farmers. They don't have any books in the house. And these two girls are just sitting upstairs in the room. And growing up, my Granny Wendy didn't have many books either. All she had was her Bible, a Bell's Best cookbook, and three volumes of E in various encyclopedias. She had lots of paper around, too, but it's best not to talk to Granny Wendy about her paper Unless she asked you to go out in the woods with her. Do you remember that time 
No. No, you probably don't. You went out in the woods one time with Granny, didn't you, Sajma? Man, you ran. You ran like Granny was chasing you, screaming about all those bones. Anyway, so time passes. We can tell this because it's the old lady's birthday. The girls get to celebrate. They eat downstairs for the first time, forever. Some company comes over, but the girls had gone back upstairs by then. Nobody noticed his little girl footprints all over the house. Sneaky, sneaky. But what wasn't sneaky was the chicken they killed for the celebration. A real asshole of a chicken that pecked at anybody who tried to feed it. That should teach you a lesson. Don't be the memorable chicken come dinner time. And after the old lady gets her birthday party, she gets kind of pissed. Turns out, Annie crushed her favorite hat. Annie was putting away that big-ass war and peace book and put it on the cap in the drawer, and the old lady flipped her shit. She drags her out on the street, yelling, Here, Germans, we got that little girl for you. Okay, Opo doesn't do that. That'd be pretty fucked up. Plus, she's not whatever accent I just gave her. But the Germans do show up. Annie and Cindy have to stay in a closet all night long, freaking out. Reminds me of another story. About times kids hid away. I think that story was called Goonies. I don't know. About this time, Annie begins to get weak as shit. Like, her line jump goes down under like three feet. She can't do shit. Crazy. Cindy makes, starts making her walk around all day. I guess seeing how the girls are a little squirrely, not jumping very far, walking all day, the farm family take the girls out to a barn. In the barn, there's other Jewish refugees, including a little girl about Annie's age. But you can forget about her, I guess, because I forgot to write down her name, and Annie never talks to her, being so shy. And it doesn't matter, though, because... Right around the corner is Annie's birthday. The whole time, Cindy doesn't celebrate hers at all, but the old lady and Annie, they get at least one birthday apiece. Johan doesn't get one, Big D doesn't get one, nobody does. But Annie gets a book and a Monopoly game, which is a lot older than I realized. Still have the different colored money and everything. Annie's loving life. Having a pretty swell time living with her sister in a tiny attic with three old people telling them what to do and fucking Nazis outside trying to kill them. Don't we all have that point, love that point in our lives? Well, we do. Until, like Annie, we pick up a newspaper and read about all the death camps and the fucking Nazis murdering people and realize all our friends and family that went off quote-unquote volunteering got sent to the showers and were gassed to death. This is a horrifying concept. And you got to realize Annie here, she's, what, 10, maybe 11? What age were you when you read about the death camps that killed your friends and families? Older than fucking 10. I'll wager that. But, of course, about this time, Cindy starts worrying about her lungs. I should have mentioned before now, Cindy's about 20 or so. Rachel, the oldest daughter, she was already a school teacher, like 25, when they went into hiding. 
So of course, Sandy's worried about how she's looking, thinking she'll never get out of this mess. She'll never get married. She'll never have babies. It's just natural. That's what people think about. Unfortunately, when she gets all closed off, not talking, getting upset, it means Annie has nobody to play anything with, even Monopoly. So she plays both sides by herself like a crazy hobo with a sock puppet. Do you want to buy a boardwalk, Mr. Scrunchy? Too fucking bad. While you were peeing, I took over the bank and bought all the properties. <laughs> Little girls are weird. I mean, why the hell did the puppet have to pee? Anyway, a teacher visits them, knows all about the situation, tells them, hey, Rachel's alive. She made it out. And then, it's 1944. You're in fifth grade. Holy shit. Time passes on. Booty wheat. And then Rachel shows up. We learn about the Normandy invasion. The Allies are kicking ass and taking names all over France. Won't be too long now, but hold on. There's a bit of sad news. This is the part of the book that kind of devastated me, honestly. See, Rachel has this postcard. Uncle Phil, when he was on the train, wrote the postcard and tossed it out at one of the stops, hoping somebody would post it. They did. Made its way back to her. I'm just going to be quiet for a bit. Let you think about that. On the way to the camps. Couldn't even get off the train. So he tossed it out the window. A postcard. So Rachel leaves. With her ball of sunshine. And Johan realizing. Hey it's summer. Because there's sun and stuff. He figures. Hey let's, let's do some shit. Let's have some fun. Each girl gets in the wheelbarrow. They take her out into the field. Stay with me. And he's cut some hay down. Made a little private place for all of them. Stay with me. This doesn't get creepy. He dumps the girls out on the lawn, riding the bright summer sunshine. And then he fucks off. And the girls get some vitamin D. Well, Danny gets sunstroke because that's what happens when you stay in a room for, you know, a year and some change. But anyway... Remember how this book was a big downer? We just had a moment a couple moments ago. All the hiding and the, the fucking Nazis everywhere. So the family we met in the barn with a little girl nobody talked to, especially not Annie. Remember them? Turns out the fucking Nazis found them. They were taken to the camps or killed. I can't remember. Surprise. And that's fucked up. But because of that, the houses are being searched even more. Fucking Nazis are positioning motor soldiers around town. Would you like to know where the headquarters is going to be? Right in the fucking house, right underneath them. Turns out the Allies are trying to invade the Netherlands, but failed pretty hard with Operation Market Garden. Making this to be around September 1944-ish. Time flies. Booty wheat. One night, Annie gets a little hungry. She knows there's fucking Nazis downstairs, but usually Johan or the old lady or the Big D, they're hanging out in the kitchen, kind of stopping the Nazis from going upstairs. And it's been a while since the family sent any food up because 
If they did, all the fucking Nazis would wonder what the fuck is going on. So Annie sneaks down, takes a breath, opens the door, and right the fuck in the face of a fucking Nazi. Who would have guessed it? Anyway, Johan plays fast and loose. He's like, oh no, that, not, that, don't worry about it, you fucking Nazi. That was just my niece. It's all cool. And then he quickly calls Big D and is like, get your fucking niece over here now. And they cover it, and the whole thing proves that Germans really aren't that smart. I mean, the niece was nine feet tall, is all I'm saying. And then the Germans just fuck off. They leave the house. Don't even say goodbye. Well, they sort of, they sort of say goodbye because they start taking men from the village again. And Johan gets scared because he's not stupid. And he goes into hiding because irony is interesting. While he's gone, the old lady and Big D get a little squirrely. They get scared. They tell Annie and her sister to get the fuck out. You know, go go back hang out with the Hannicks, the first family. And the Hannicks have an underground bunker because, of course, they do. And I think back, maybe back then every house had a bunker. Or at least an underground pit that you could throw people that you're hiding. I mean, not everybody can have that cool bookcase thing. That's all I'm saying. Hiding places are cheap. But after a couple of days of being in an underground dugout shitty place, the girls are told, hey, you can go back to the room upstairs. Because Yuhan came back and was like, motherfuckers, that was gone a week. And you bastards could not wait a week? And you buried the girls alive? After the whole buried alive thing, not really what would happen, but you get it. Cindy says, fuck that shit. She gets papers. She says, you know, that she's not Jewish. She's just a maid. She came from out of town. She dyes her hair back to that ugly red. She starts working, getting some money, being able to get out of the house. Starts dating boys. That's a fucking weird ass thing to say after all the shit that we've been through in this. Everything we've just heard, but I'd roll with it. Girl is allowed to get her some. And then, mostly out of nowhere, a thing happens. Fucking Canadians. They come in, they save the day. Maple syrup-loving motherfuckers start bombing the shit out of the town, then they come rolling in with tanks. And everybody's happy to see them, of course. Siri's been jumping up on the tanks and kissing the men. Johan would have stopped her, but, you know, you can get him on her that way. But he was too busy bumming cigarettes and food off the soldiers. I smoked for 20 years, I get it. Johan stopped showing off the girls, telling everyone, you know, I had these little bastards for two years and none of you dipshits knew anything about it because if I told you, you'd have turned me in because you're all fucking monsters and my friends. Then he clapped Annie on the back and she fell forward because her legs have no strength because she's been in a tiny fucking room with her sister for two years. Walking around the room all day doesn't do shit. So the war's over. The girls get to go home. Cindy has a boyfriend. Rachel comes get him, tells him dad's home. I don't even know where the fuck he's been this whole time. They promise Johan and the old lady they'll come back. Big D can fuck right off. They'll visit, though. And we smash cut. 20 years later, postscript. Annie is now Joanna. 
She brings her two American as fuck kids to visit Johan and Opo. Opo, still kicking, still alive. And upstairs, she shows them the closet. They haven't even changed the closet. Still got the little hiding place. And her kids pressure. Get in. Show us at the place where you hid for your life from fucking Nazis. And they probably sat back with their Polaroid camera or something. In case you don't know, Polaroids were basically Instagram back in the day, except you got to shake the shit out of something rather than be tracked by a giant corporation. But anyway, Joanna can't fit in the crawl space like she could when she feared for her life when she was ten. She begins to cry. And the book ends not with a bang, but with a whimper. A poignant moment of a woman looking back on a horrific time and illustrating how fleeting time and pain and war can be. How all those things, life in general, affects you to your core. Years after, memories linger and fill you with pain or joy or simple narrative that you must get out. That you must tell or risk imploding with the weight. This book was written to tell Joanna Reese's daughters why her mother cried when she could not fit inside a crawl space in a house they'd never seen. Remember that when your parents are at a loss for words. You can never know what someone has been through until they open up. That works from the other side, too. Do not expect your children or your spouse or your friends or anyone to understand your past if you deny them the opportunities to know you. Expectation is the great killer in all of us, wanting without paying. Tell your story the best you can. Try to live a good life. And that's where this episode will end. Thank you for listening. Stay in. Read a book. Music, Dances and Dames, by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.